0: Okay, I know you didn't plan for your life to look like this, neither did I, and I know it feels like you've lost so much, but I keep hearing God whisper, I am right here, and there is more. I'm Michelle Donnelly, and this is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. Let's talk about loneliness for a second. It's something that all single moms have to deal with, but one of the reasons it's so frustrating is that it is not a one-size-fits-all kind of a thing. Your experience with loneliness is going to be totally different than mine. And oddly enough, being in a relationship usually doesn't fix it. To learn more about the roots of your own experience with loneliness and what those roots are telling you that you really need, take our What's Your Loneliness Type Quiz over at PlusOneParents.org. Several years ago for a summer vacation, I took my kids to Washington, D.C. This was a trip we were really looking forward to because we're all sort of history buffs and wanted to go to a place where so much history in our nation had taken place. The downside of this, being summer vacation, was the week that we went was extremely hot. It was over 100 degrees. And so instead of getting to spend a lot of time just wandering around and enjoying the monuments, we were racing between them, red-faced, hurrying up to just snap a quick picture to prove that we'd been there, and then just kept it moving. This did mean, though, because it was so hot outside, that we spent an extended amount of time at the museum's inside, And one of those museums that we came across was the Museum of the Bible. So as we made ourselves comfortable in this air-conditioned space, we're wandering around checking out the exhibits, and there's a special featured exhibit while we were there for something called the Slave Bible. I didn't know what to expect, but I went inside the exhibit, and I was absolutely horrified at what I saw. What I saw there was what was being called a Bible, but was missing so many key passages. Sometimes entire books had been just thrown out. Now for the creators of this Bible, the whole point of doing this was to leave in those sections of scripture that emphasize obedience and emphasize submission. But they wanted to be sure To take out anything that would mention freedom or liberation for the purposes of using the Word of God to manipulate enslaved people into submitting to the brutality of their masters. And so, where a traditional Protestant Bible has 66 books in it, this Bible only had pieces of 14 books. And I mean, when we're talking about key parts that are missing, the entire exodus of the Israelites from Egypt is missing. The story is not even there. And so what we had here was a Bible that was preaching captivity instead of liberty. We had a Bible that was teaching oppression instead of freedom. A Bible that was preaching humiliation instead of dignity. This was absolutely no Bible at all. And while this was an extremely methodical and large-scaled attempt at twisting the Word of God in order to manipulate an entire people group, I know many of you have experienced something somewhat similar in the way that the Word of God has been distorted and twisted and used against you to keep you involved in an abusive relationship. Now, the sources of this corruption of the usage of the Bible are many. Sometimes it's from the abuser, him or herself, and they're using scripture to justify their own behaviors and justify why you should be patient with them and to condemn anything that you might say or do in terms of holding them accountable. Other times, this might come from church leadership. And again, this can be something that is intentional, that is meant to twist the word of God in order for you to be under their control. But sometimes it's from well-meaning people that really don't know any different or any better. And then sometimes this comes from total misunderstandings of scripture that are just passed down generationally and denominationally, that there are pieces of scripture that may be removed from a context or are taught without an understanding of the context. And so then when it comes to the way that they are lived out, though there is a root in the Bible, the way it gets lived out is unbiblical. So for example, for a woman who is coming forward with some problems in her marriage, or perhaps she's even aware that abuse is actually happening, if she's coming forward with this, she might be told, you may have been told, Well, the Bible says to turn the other cheek. Or that when it comes to these types of situations and loving this person, that, you know, well, love is patient and love is kind, you know? Love is long-suffering. It keeps no record of wrongs. And that comes out of 1 Corinthians 13. Sometimes this looks like the conversations around headship and submission. And so you may have heard things like Ephesians 5.24 that says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives must submit to their husbands in everything. And that this is something that you're going to have to submit to your husband in. It may be that even in that, that the understanding is, but that's how you might turn him. That's how you might change him. And so then you might get 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 brought up here that says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words but by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your life. So basically that you should just be a good example. And other times this may look like having some of the blame placed on you for what's happening that if he has angry outbursts, or if he has a porn addiction, or if he finds himself needing to lie to you and keep things from you, that there must be something that you're doing that's causing him to do those things. And that it would be better for you to take the plank out of your own eye before trying to address anything that he is doing. Now, these are just a handful of examples, and perhaps you've heard some of these or other ones that are similar before. But This all can seem like, well, it comes out of Scripture. It seems pretty straightforward, you know? Maybe it is that the Bible's trying to indicate to us that we're supposed to, as wives or as women, to take the ill treatment and the brutality of another person, of a man, to help them and to give space for God to do his work, that perhaps the suffering is God's will so that he can rescue this other person. But what I want to address here today is that using Scripture in this way is wrong, that these verses used in this way do not mean what they were originally intended to mean, that this is not what Scripture has to say about abuse at all, that this is absolutely contrary to what the Bible teaches, and that there is more to the story than you have been told. Now, the practice of misapplying scripture in this way, as I said, sometimes it's intentional. That is spiritual abuse. And other times it is well-meaning, but it is from a place of ignorance. But no matter what, it involves a practice of cherry-picking through scripture to pick out what we think it should say to us, and then trying to establish our point by backing it up with these little excerpts from the Word. We can't do that. That is not the way that the Bible is meant to be read. The Bible is meant to be read from start to finish to give us an entire picture of the story and the narrative that God is trying to tell us about who he is and what he's doing and what his plans are. And when we read the story from start to finish, we can see that God is against evil. It is the opposite of who he is. He's against Oppression and wickedness and corruption and deceit and abuse, He's against all these things. They are not in Him. They are the opposite of Him. And in fact, that in this story, this is why Jesus, His Son, came to die, was given for us as a sacrifice to die, because you and I are locked in this battle of good and evil. And God desires to set each and every one of his children free from that for all of eternity. So while this story is about God redeeming his children and about good ultimately claiming victory in all of eternity, it is also about God standing in judgment of evil, standing against evil. And when we look at scripture and understand That there's a battle of good and evil going on here. We can line up on the right side by understanding what God says is good. He's the one who defines it for us. And we can see this in passages like Isaiah 117. It says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. This means that doing justice is good, but it's also synonymous with correcting oppression. Abuse is oppression. It is trying to take power over another person. It's trying to take power away from that person and to dominate them. And so if we think about justice and how, for example, this plays out in our court systems, we don't see people that, for example, absolutely it's known this person is a murderer. Maybe they've even admitted to it, that this is a thing they have done. That the judge stands up there and says, well, you know what? I think if we let them go, they might learn their lessons. So let's just, let's just see how this all plays out if we just let them go. That's not justice. That's corruption. That's wickedness. And so we can't then, knowing that God desires us to seek justice, we cannot then misinterpret scripture and twist scripture in ways that permit wickedness. Injustice is going to happen on this earth. There are times where the court gets it wrong. Absolutely True. But as far as it depends on us, when we see something that is evil, God commands us to correct it. So knowing that this is the lens that we can view the entirety of Scripture through, then we have to know that we can't cherry pick through the verses. We have to, if we see a verse like this, go, what's the bigger picture? What's the context? What's around it? What is it telling us? And so with that in mind, I want to look at some of these scriptures that I just talked about that are often thrown at women to keep them in abusive situations. Turn the other cheek, for example. I want you to think about, to set this up, an example perhaps where it just seemed to you that an abuser just really liked stirring up conflict. It seemed like they liked picking fights that they like to create problems, to stir up jealousy, either in themselves or you, but that the more you tried to explain yourself, the crazier they made you feel. The more nonsensical it seemed that your side of the story was. Now, here's the deal. If you have ever felt that, that's absolutely real. They do this on purpose. They do this intentionally because it is a total power move to get you riled up. They like to see that they're able to stir a person's emotions and have control in that situation. So when we look at turn the other cheek, for example, Jesus is not saying stand there and take it, which is often how this is being used. What this is telling us in the context where it comes from is the fact that when someone is being an aggressor towards you, you do more by standing in quiet defiance rather than fighting back. It is a scripture about knowing your strength and your peace and standing in that and not needing to justify yourself to a person who purely wants to take you down, who purely wants to harm you, It is saying, I am above these petty debates that you want to drag me into, and I am not going to fall for it. So again, if we're looking at everything through this battle of good versus evil lens, we can see that Jesus was telling us that there is far more to be gained by disengaging than engaging. So then now if we take this lens to this headship versus submission conversation, we can see that that really is an irrelevant argument. It really doesn't matter what you believe about headship or submission. Because again, if we look at what all of scripture teaches about submission, the Bible tells us that we are to submit to God first. That he is the one that we owe our ultimate loyalty to above anyone or anything in this life. And when we look at then what that looks like, it means that we are to imitate Christ, that we are to, as the Bible says, hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So if in submission to another person, for example, you have to embrace evil, You have to go against the word of God. You cannot submit to that person over submitting to God. And so further then, if we actually dive deeper into Ephesians 5 and look at those verses about submission, we see that in verse 21, that sets up this entire conversation, that it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So out of your submission to Christ— Husbands and wives, you are to submit to one another. This is a mutual submission that comes out of first submitting loyalty to Jesus. So if in imitating Christ and following after his teaching, I understand that I am supposed to hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good, that means God is not calling wives to submit to abuse in order for their husbands to be saved. What it means is a wife needs to expose the abuse in order for the possibility that her husband might be saved. Also in Ephesians 5 verse 11, it says, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. Take no part, not cover it up, not tolerate it, not stand by quietly and let it keep happening. It says to take no part in it and to expose it. And so when we talk about some of those practices that are unbiblical, you know, this idea that we should turn a blind eye to somebody's sin is absolutely refuted in Scripture. Paul has been extremely strong words for the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians about the fact that they were turning a blind eye to one of their church congregants who was deep in sexual sin. And he tells them, if you want to have any shot at seeing this brother saved, you need to have discipline for him. He needs to have consequences for what he is choosing So Paul was teaching them here what it really means to love another person. He's the one who chapters later writes, love is patient, love is kind. What Paul was saying is that loving this person is allowing them to experience a little bit of discomfort from the consequences of their sin in order to lead them to Christ. That's truly what we do for people we love is to point them towards Jesus and eternal life. That what they have to gain in eternity is so much greater than any pleasures of sin that they could be enjoying here in this earth. And so he was saying You need to back away from this person in order for God to work in that space. It's not for you to be their savior. That's the space where Jesus works on that person. And it's up to that person whether or not they're going to respond to that. It's up to them whether or not they're going to repent or whether they're going to experience the wrath of God in his judgment of their sin if they continue in that but that it's not loving to cover up their sin, and it's not loving to deny them that experience of meeting God in a real and deep way. And furthermore, in this idea that you could set a good example and change somebody else, Paul also refutes this in 1 Corinthians. What Paul does say is that in some of these marriages, there were people who were believers married to unbelievers. And a lot of times what that looked like was a couple that were unbelieving when they married, and then one person converted as Christianity spread. And so people were wondering, well, what do I do? Like, do I have to get a divorce now that I'm married to an unbeliever? And Paul was saying in those instances, no, if this person is willing to work with you and to live at peace with you, and they seem to be open to these things, then your good example is a living testimony and might be something that God would use to also bring them to faith. But in 1 Corinthians 7, he also says it is not for someone to submit again to abuse or mistreatment in order for a person to be saved. He says that if that person does not choose to live at peace with you, Paul says it's not for you to chase after that person. He says to let them go. He actually says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He is saying, if this person is opposed to the gospel and they're not going to live at peace with you and respect your submission to God, then it is not for you to stay in that space because you don't even know if they're going to ever respond. And as far as any teaching that might indicate that what you have suffered is somehow in part at least your fault, that is absolutely against the teaching of Scripture. Never is abuse the victim's fault. It is always a choice on the part of the abuser. And we see this backed up in Scripture. We see in 2 Corinthians 5.10. That it says for we must all stand before christ to be judged we will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body this scripture tells us that each of us has our own accountability to christ for the choices that we make there is no they made me do it jesus when we get to the end of our lives We actually can see in scripture that Adam tried this. He tried this in Genesis. He tried to say to God, well, I ate it because of this woman that you gave me. And God wasn't having it. He didn't say, okay, Adam, I'm so sorry. You're right. No, Adam was held accountable for his choices. Nowhere in scripture does it say that Well, if you walk on eggshells enough, this other person would change. Or perhaps you're just setting them off and triggering them. And if you can just keep quiet long enough that maybe they'll turn and see really what's going on. The fact of the matter is they can choose to get help instead of hurting you. It is all a choice. Again, we see here in this scripture, particularly this distinction between good and evil, and that there are rewards for the good things that we do, but that if we persist in disobedience and evil, that there are consequences and justice for that. So from start to finish, we can see that in all of Scripture, God is very serious about this battle between good and evil and that he wants to see his children set free from it and that we should look at anything that Scripture teaches in such a way that allows us to experience some of that freedom in our lives in the present day. This is not something that is just for us whenever we die and get to heaven. This is something for us to begin to experience now that his justice in the Bible is described like a river that like drops of rain become a river that his justice is coming forth more and more and more until it reaches its fullness in eternity. And so this is for us to know then that there is more to the story than we have been told. And knowing all of this is so important for you then personally to be able to start experiencing that freedom in your life, that knowing the truth of this is how you are able to first confront any spiritual abuse that you have experienced in your own life and how to walk in the freedom of knowing who God really is and what he says about you and the circumstances that we face in this life and how he desires so much more for you. But now that we have this knowledge, knowing what to do with it is another thing entirely. Have you ever looked around at your life and thought, is this really all there is? Plus One Parents is releasing a new paperback Bible study called Made for More, Life Beyond Hurt, Loss, and Heartbreak. Made for More is your personal guide through six biblical stories that address where is God in rejection, betrayal, loss, and abuse? Does God care about your fear and sadness and anxiety and frustration? And what can God do to take back every last piece of your story, even the mistakes? Made for More releases April 21st, 2023. What you see around you right now is not all that there is. You were made for more. I mentioned earlier that the Bible guides us to imitate Christ, to hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And so as we consider one action step that we can take with this wisdom that we now have, we can start to get our minds around how do we apply that by embracing where do we need to grow in our understanding, where I am today, of hating evil and holding fast to what is good. To put this in the simplest way I can, the easiest way to start doing this is to call evil evil. Call evil by its name. To name what has been done to you. Name the individuals who have committed these horrendous things against you. Name what it has cost you in terms of your relationship with God and understanding who He really is, who you really are to Him, and how much He adores you, to call out all of those things specifically and to take them before God and say, God, these things were evil You know that they are evil. You hate that they are evil. You hate that these things have hurt me and they have hurt me. And to have that conversation with the Lord and grieve with him, knowing that he absolutely is against the treatment that you have received and he desires to see you set free. And I know naming this is difficult because it means, but wait a minute, there's a box of stuff in the back, you know, down in my basement that I don't want to open up, my emotional basement, you know, that I don't want to open. Or it's the sense that like, if I go down this road, though, I'm I'm just going to be angry, I'm going to be sad. You know, I don't I don't really want to think about it. Or perhaps you're already there and you're like, "I am so just upside down with all of this and I don't see a way out. I don't see how all of this grief or sadness or anger, or any of this is going to end. And how is naming this going to make this any better for me?" But what I want you to know is that naming it is essential to getting free from it because you can't get freed from something that you don't even know you're being imprisoned by. You cannot find full release in getting away from something that is holding on to you if you are not even aware that it's there. And if you are aware that it's there, the emotional experience of being angry or being sad, of feeling that an injustice has occurred is precisely what we need, number one, to step away from any remnant of anything that's still trying to hold on to us, but number two, to know what it has cost us because then we know what we're fighting for, what we're fighting to get back And this is important because one of the steps to getting free beyond feeling all these feelings and naming all of these things that have happened is going to be forgiveness. And I'm not telling you today that that's the step you're on. I'm telling you that that is the road to freedom. Forgiveness is to set you free. It's to say this thing happened to me and it was wrong, but I'm not going to retaliate. I'm going to give this to God. And so we have to know, what am I giving to God? What has it cost me? What am I asking Him to make right? We talk more in our upcoming Bible study, Made for More, Life Beyond Hurt, Loss, and Heartbreak, about steps to forgiveness and how to do this. Because here's the deal. Like I've been saying in this episode, you've not been told the whole story. You've not been told the whole story about what forgiveness really is and what it's not. And so... For this, though, for getting ready for those steps of forgiveness, God has us enter into the grief because through the grief and in the naming and knowing His closeness, knowing Him as our defender, we are able to trust Him with the forgiveness that we give so that we can walk in peace. And only in that will we begin to experience greater degrees of freedom from the evil that has tried to oppress us. And to hold fast to what is truly good and lovely and pure and wonderful about our relationship with God in this very difficult and challenging life. It's only in understanding what was wrong and coming to the realization of that, that we can begin to start questioning our assumptions about God, questioning our assumptions about ourselves, and start to truly embrace what is good, what is right, what is true. Only then are we able to see the rest of the story. And there is way more to the story than you or I have been told. Thanks for being with me for this episode today. For more resources for single moms and abuse survivors, join us at plusoneparents.org. You can also catch us on Facebook or Instagram at plusone.parents. Until next time, remember, you are seen and you are beloved.